this is the story of Pesel Micha. I'm going to take five minutes and backtrack so everyone will know where we are because some of you missed this week. Sefer Shoftim has three parts, the introduction chapters one and two, which is telling us how things look um, at the beginning of Sefer Shoftim, the, the problems of lack of conquest, the conquest is not finished, we're left with many enemies. And then the body of the book, which is chapters three to 16, which tells us the various stories of the Shoftim in chronological order. <coughs> and then the last two stories, which we're in the middle of now, chapters 17 to 21, which are showing basically the spiritual decline at this time. Now, the story of Pesel Micha is known, as it's known, is chapter 17 and chapter 18. So we're gonna look here at this version. Chapter 17 we did last week. And basically what happens in chapter 17 is that we meet a man named Michalu. He starts off with Hashem's name tacked onto his own name. And then we discover that he's actually not such a great guy because although he has God in his name, he steals money from his mother, which is not so nice. <coughs> and his mother uh, had curses the person who stole the money and he says, my, maybe you shouldn't curse the person who stole the money because it was me. And she's like, oh, no, God bless you. I don't want to curse you. And you know what? I pledged that money to make a, an idol for God. And we begin to see in chapter 17, that's what I said, the satire here, we see a number of strange things. Number one, this is our hero, so to speak, is a very not hero. He steals from his mother, which is pretty low. Then we see that in order to serve God, they are making a pestle. And it only escalates because it's beyond making the pestle, which is a stone image, they make a masecha, which is a molten image. And they make trafim, which seem to be some sort of um, figurines, which are used for divination. They make an aphod, which is regulation Kohen Levi uh, clothing, <coughs> which they make for, uh, for this shrine. And as the shrine goes into uh, use and Micha becomes very invested in it, he loses the Hashem at the end of his name and he becomes just Micha. And um, there are many Michas in the, in the Tanakh, for those of you who love the name Micha, but this, is, this guy is a little bit problematic. And then we find that a Levi enters the picture, a Levi who we don't know who he is, although uh, I did give you a little bit of a, uh, um, what do you call it, spoiler alert. And we are not told the name of the Levi till the end of chapter 18. And the lady comes along, Levian did not have their own Nahala, and the lady doesn't have a way to make a living. And Micha says, why don't you stay with me and you're a lady and you could be my Kohen. Another example of the confusion of the times, a lady can't be a Kohen, but Micha, if you really wanna you know, follow the Jewish religion, then uh, you shouldn't be having a shrine with idols in it. But Micha very piously declares at the end of chapter 17, Micha says, Now I know that God will be, do good to me because I have a lady for a Kohen. 
So what we're getting a picture of in chapter 17 is the um, delusional nature of a person like Micha who thinks that he's, you know, serving God and God is going to be good to him. And he's got a lady for a Kohen and he made his own little shtibel and everything is cool. Now, there is a phrase that is used repeatedly in the last five chapters, and that is here in, chap in chapter 17, we see it in, in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was straight in his own eyes. And this is our um, theme. It's our theme, Pasuk. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was straight in his own eyes. And we're beginning to see what that looks like. It looks very bizarre. There's no king. We can interpret this in different ways. The king have, haven't, uh, the era of the kings has not begun yet. It happens midway in Sefer Shmuel. And <coughs> we can assume that the Pashat shot is that there's no leadership. There's no judge. This event happens at a time when there were no leaders in Israel. And every man did what was straight in his own eyes. And you see what happens with Jews when there's no leader. Things tend to fall apart. So now we'll start chapter 18. Pasuk We stop right here. This I told you is the theme Pasuk. It's repeated here. And it's repeated because... This is, again, <coughs> no king. There's no leadership. And I think it's important to emphasize that just like we you know, were heading into uh, Adar and the Megillah, just as we have that undertone always of Melech in the Megillah referring to Hashem, here too, by one definitely underlying theme is there is no God. In Israel, they were not really worshiping God. Excuse me. So this, we only get the first part of it. The second part of it, that the, every man did it was right in his own eyes. That's kind of understood. And we get this phrase repeated for every part of the, the two different stories. Um, and this Chapter 18, we're kind of taking the, the idol of Mich and going national. What happens? In those days, right, the tribe of Dud is looking for additional land because there wasn't uh, for him until that time in Israel, Nahala. Now, um, let's take a look here. Okay. So if you look at this map, you'll see Don here. This is the northern part of Israel. I did have for you somewhere a regular map. Yeah. This map shows you the uh, heartland of Israel. If you'll see here, Sarah Eshtahol, these are places that if you travel today on the way to Beit Shemesh, you'll see these places. All of the places of Dan are in that area. And the 
um, you'll have a Shimshon Junction. The Kever of Don is over there by Ikea. I'm reliably told by my daughter. I haven't seen it yet. Even today, we know that this whole area is called Gushdan. The bus system in Tel Aviv is Don. And yet, we also know that Don is the northernmost tribe. And that's the story that we're going to be seeing today. You see here, this here is the Kinneret. And we only get a part. I couldn't find a full map to show you this. This is where Don conquers in chapter 18. And it's all the way up north. You see here, Tzidon, Sor. This is Tyre and Sidon. This is Lebanon. Eretz Tzidon, Lebanon. You see here, Akko. We're very far north here. So it's interesting that Don has territory in the heartlands near Beit Shemesh, right? And then also has all the way up north. And there's reasons for this. One of them is that if you look at the end of chapter, <coughs> chapter one in Sefer, uh, Sefer Shoftim, you'll see that it says that the, the territory of Don, they were pressured very much by the Amori. They didn't let them live over there. They gave them a hard time. They don't have enough land. There's different opinions in the Mepharshim why Don needs more land. But here we see in the first thing, they, they look, they're looking for more land. They didn't have land. Okay, Pasuk Ben. Now it's important to understand that the story of Pesel Micha and the next story of Pilegish Begiva, we are not told when these stories happen. The mainstream opinion in the Chazal is they all happen at the beginning of the time of the Shoftim. So that after Yeshua dies, Yeshua definitely leaves a power vacuum, right? There, there are some elders and there are some things, but there's a problem. So when we say there was no king in Israel, so the Chastal said, yes, there was no judge. It was a time of lack of leadership. There were Dak and the Barbanel say, no, it was a time at the after Shimshon and before Ailey, and there was no king there. It, it can be argued in both ways. But here, this story of Don getting more Nahala seems kind of pertinent to the beginning of the time of the Shoftim. If so, why are we putting the whole story and both stories at the end? And that seems to tell us that after seeing what goes on in all of the stories of the Shoftim, we want to understand how badly the uh, spiritual level of the Jewish people declines in this period of time. So we're taking this out of context and putting it at the end. But understanding what that done needs more space seems to be indicating that this is at the beginning of the time of the Shoftim. Now, Don had only one mishpacha. Don had only one son. His name was Hushim. <coughs> Hushim means senses. Uh, apparently, Don was deaf. He was silent. And um, all of Don is one big family. So they send five men from their officers, B'nai Chayil, strong men, from Sarah and Eshtol, those famous places where Shimshon was from as well, to spy out the land, to investigate it. And they said to them, this is your job. Go and investigate the land. 
and they're going north and they come up to Ephraim to the house of Micha. You see, they're coming from Tzara Eshtaol. They're traveling north and Micha's uh, shrine is here in Har Ephraim, somewhere west of Shiloh, which should say something to you. Okay. Pasigimel. Hema in base Micha. And they recognize, they come to the house of Micha, and they recognize the voice of the Levi. We met the Levi in chapter 17. This guy who agrees to stay with, with Micha and to work for him. They turn aside and they say to him, they have full of questions with them. And the questions are interesting because really, what should they be saying to him? What are you doing here, Micha? Right? But the questions are three separate questions. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this? And what is to you here? The three questions are one and the same. But the first should take us back to Sefer Shvot, which we're in the middle of now in the Parsha, and show us that these words are cold words. I mentioned this last time. Right here it says, and part, this is uh, Parak Gimel, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Parak Gimel in Shmos. Moshe sees the burning bush, and Hashem says to him, Pasuke, Al Tikrav Halom. The Halom is an unusual word. Whenever we learn Tanakh, we, make, we should be making connections. Words matter. A specific word that's strange, like Halom should sort of light, light bulbs in our head and say, oh, alone, Hashem said that's a Moshe. And there's more, right? When he's giving Moshe the signs to take to Paro, he says to him, maze, right? So they say maze, right? And he says, um, The other one, here, I'm just here. Right. So Po is also here. If you look here in the Rashi, he says they're very startled. They say, Aren't you that we are supposed to be making a connection to Moshe. Now, I, I already told you, already gave you the spoiler alert, that this lady is none other than the grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu. So um, <coughs> we're only told this at the end, and we're only told this as a hint at the end of chapter 18. But you see Rashi mentions, he says, like, they can't believe it. Like, what? how could you be working for Micha with an idol? Aren't you Moshe's grandson? Now, how do they know him? If you take a look here, I'm trying to get you all the references. Okay, this is a really fascinating thing that the Malvin brings. Uh, he says, Benekhat. Okay, let's let's do the family tree, right? Levi has three sons, Gershon, Kahat, and Murari. Right? Kahat is the father of Amram. Amram is, of course, the father of Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, <coughs> Sorry, a little bit of a dryness. Okay, so if you look at that, you'll see that the, the, in Sefer Yoshua, 
okay, this is chapter 21, we're told where the Libyan lived. And every tribe had a set of cities for their uh, uh, attendant ladies. And here in Pasuke, Libnei Kahat, right? There were cities in Ephraim and Dan. And here Rashi says, the children of Kahat were the children of Moses and Yitzchak, Hebron, and Uziel. In other words, how do these people of Dan recognize the voice of the lady? It's because the lady was from a city, a lady city that happened to be near Dan. And they're startled and they say, what are you doing here? By Yomar Lehem, Kozeva Kozeva, this Pasuk Dalet, he said, listen, Micha is paying me, and Micha is feeding me, and he took me into his house, and I have a Cohen for him. Guys, you got to make a living. i got to make a living. It's a job. That's basically what he tells them. It's a job. So <laughs> it's like, you have to have, you know, an answer. This is an interesting switch. The B'nai Dan accept what Micha has said, and they say, you know what? If you're serving God, give us, you know, the word of God. Are we going to succeed in our mission? And this is like, gets very weird because the Chazal have a whole discussion, right? What, it, what does it mean? Is, are they really talking about God or are they talking about an idol? According to Chazal, and a lot of Midrashim for you about Chazal, according to Chazal, you know, let's skip it because we don't have so much time. A lot of, um, a lot of references, or most of the references in these stories, when we have Elohim, we would say a kuf. We wouldn't want to say Hashem's name. But according to Chazal, there's only one time that we're actually talking about God. None of this is really holy. On the other hand, Pasuk Vav, it really sounds like this lady, he says, Kohen, he is now the Kohen, right? It sounds like he's really talking about God, but we have to understand this. This is a strange thing. If they say to him, what are you doing here? serving idols and now Amalimana can you like give us a you know give us a, a prophecy and there's something bizarre you know you know <laughs> it's such a strange thing to say, give us a prophecy remember there's a very funny bit about Excuse that. Me. there's sorry. a lot of noise could everybody please mute anybody who's not muted please mute yourself okay uh, all right. I think everybody's muted. You're all muted now. Okay. So he, you have this idea that they basically say to him, okay, so you know, you, you serve God. Tell us what God says here. And his answer is very, very interesting, right? He says to them, No Hashem Dakichem. Your path. Is facing God, the path that you're going on. What does that mean? So Rashi says it's clear to God that this is a bunch of bunk, right? 
But the Das Mikra makes a very interesting point here. The Das Mikra says, if you think about it, if someone comes to you and asks you uh, to give them uh, some prophecy of the future or whatever, in order to cover all your bases, you could say something that's completely um, fluffy and doesn't really mean anything. And that's what seems to be happening here. Because he's saying, you know, God is uh, your face, your path is facing God. It could be you'll fail, it could be you'll succeed. But Dasmikra makes the point that he's being very, very um, deceitful here. He's pretending that he's making a pronouncement in the name of God. And, you know, if you come back and, you're, and you fail, so, well, I said God was, God was on your path. It doesn't mean that God wanted you to succeed. And he covers himself in this sort of way. But you have to wonder, what does this lady slash Cohen really think about this about Zara? And I found a very interesting medrash that I want to show you here, which is instructive. Um, here. The sages, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman said, how is it that Jonathan, although a priest for idolatry, had such a long life? Because Jonathan, Jonathan made a mockery of his idol. When a man came to offer a bull, a lamb, or a goat, he would and say, draw its favor upon me. Jonathan would say, how can this thing help you? It can't see, hear, or speak. It can't do good, it can't do bad. And the man would say, well, what am I supposed to do now? I came to worship this idol. So Jonathan says, give me some flour, give me some eggs and put it before the idol and it will eat everything and that will make it look favorably on you. So the guy brought the eggs and the flour and he went and Yonatan ate it all up. <laughs> he is really a very interesting character, this little lady. Once an impudent fellow came and when Yonatan said the same thing to him, he said, if the idol doesn't give any help at all, what are you doing here? And Yonatan answered, I'm making a living. So you have this sort of weird sort of, you know, is he, does he really believe any of this? So there's a number of things that we have to talk about here. Number one, number one, you have to look at the, the results of this story. So we're told that Yonatan lives a long time, the lady, and we're also told that Micha gets a share of the world to come. So this is another one of the Midrashim here. Right. Page. Right. Rebnatan said it is three miles, three meal, right, from Garab to Shiloh, close enough for the smoke from God's altar in Shiloh and the smoke from Micha's idol in Garab to mingle with each other. When the angels wanted to do away with Micha, the Holy One said, let him be, his bread is available to wayfarers. Something to think about here, that we have here a pair of singers, Micha and Yonatan. And Micha is given a certain amount of leeway because he was hospitable, he was machmis or him. And Yonatan is given a certain amount of leeway because he didn't believe any of the stuff he was doing. So, 
in this story, we don't really have any out and out heroes. We, we do have these interesting types with their strangeness, but we do see that a Kanishbahu, and I find it very interesting, a Kanishbahu takes the, the, um, the positive sides and takes that into account, even for sinners. A little bit of encouragement for us. Pasuk Zion. Okay, so this is like he gives them this pronouncement, God will be with you. And they go along on their merry way. They're looking around, really, it would seem, for an easy target. They're not up for a big battle. If you look at their territory, their original territory, you see they're they could take this coastland, except it's occupied by the very fierce and belligerent Philistines. And they don't want to do that. So they're going to go all the way up north to this place, Laish, which they've heard of, which is very quiet. The Pasuk says like this. The people of Laish were, somebody's not muted. <laughs> Please mute yourselves. The people of Laish see the people, see, they see the people in Laish, and they're dwelling in peace, security. They're like the Sidonim, who are merchants, quiet, secure. Nobody is embarrassing. Machlim is embarrassing. And the aim seems to conclude to include also Yoish Etzer. Now Yoish Etzer, an interesting phrase. Etzer is a is a clue word for king, because um, we see in other places when um, Hashem tells Shmuel to anoint Shaul, Hashem says This one will restrain my nation. A Yoish Etzer would be a uh, a prince, the one who's taking over. There's no king. There's no prince. There's no enemies. They have been cut off from their, their nation of Tzidon. If you look at that map, you see that Tzidon is all the way up here. And so are all the other Lebanese types of in what's today Lebanon. They're very far from Laish. Laish seems to be merrily going along all by themselves. They're far from the Tzidon. They have no allies and they have no enemies. And it's a really kind of an ironic statement here that we're getting because you're seeing the non-Jews who live in a place where they have no king. Ain Melech Israel, And they're getting along okay. They're doing their business. They're minding their own business. And they're okay. Now they are, you know, uh, uh, you know sitting ducks. They're, they're definitely an easy target. They're not protected. And that's because they have no leadership. <coughs> but in terms of the corruption that we see on the Jewish side when there's no king, I think we're being invited to contrast the non-Jews who get along fine without a king. So these five spies of Dan come back to Tzara and Eshtaol, to the rest of the clan of the Dan, and they say to them, their brothers, Matem, look, what's the story? 
ma'atem, what are you? Which is interesting, right? They don't need to go into a million questions of what, what's the story? Pasuk 10, Bayomru. Kuma v'na'alelehem, kira'inu etz'aretz v'nei toba ma'od, v'atem machshim, right? Come on, let's go get it. The land is very good. Why are you sitting quietly? I'll tell you, don't be lazy. We have a sure thing up there. No problem. It's a shoe in. Get up and come with us. Now, there are indications in the text, I'll show you, <coughs> that they actually have a right to this land. Okay. One of them is the language here that echoes Yoshua who tells the people, why are you so lazy? Go conquer your land. Another is that they come to this place, Laish, and they call it, right, um, Leshem. Okay, this comes a little later. Uh, okay, a little later. It's called Leshem, but you should know the Leshem is a key word also because Leshem is one of the stones on the Hoshan of the Kohen and Leshem happens to be the stone of Dun. I believe it's an Opo, I'm not sure. Okay. Um, Pasuk Tet. We were in the middle of this. Don't be lazy, come, let's go and inherit the land. Pasuk Yud. And they continue their sales pitch. When you get there, you'll see they're secure. They're, they're not, you know, in the sense of that they're secure is mean that they're not afraid of enemies. They are not um, prepared to, for any kind of attack. They're, they're like, it's open. It's like easy. There's plenty of space there. God has given it in your hands. It's a great place. Everything you want's up there. Okay, verse 11. So they get together an army, 600 men, <coughs> all built it up for war. And this is actually very interesting because if you go through Sefer Shoftim and even the beginning of Sefer Shmuel, you will find the Jews of the biblical era of this time are, have no weapons, right? Ehud makes himself a little dagger, right? I mean, Gidon, they have chauffeurs and pitchers. You don't see the Jews armed. And here we see Don, they're ready, they're armed. And again, the contrast between what the Jews are up to and what the non-Jews are up to. So the Jews are now belligerent, about to you know, start up with these people. And we have to see the behavior of the people of Don is quite reprehensible. If Margaret is on, that's Telstone. Okay, they're following the map, right? They're going from Saron Eshtaol up in this direction, past Kiryat Yarim. It's a very curious Pasuk. And I think the only thing we can gain from this Pasuk is that they went past Yehuda and Yehuda could care less. This is another indication of the problems of the time of the judges. There is no unity. Dunn does its own thing. Isha Yehuda's like, you know, do what you want. Not my problem. Pasuk Yud Gimel. 
And on their way up again, they come to the house of Micha. Now, Micha's house seems to have been a very open house. All the people came there. And this is what we're talking about. We're talking about his hospitality. The five who would originally be sent as spies, and they say to the other members of the 600, which is 595, you know, you know that in this house, there's a whole little stable, whole stable there. They have an aphod, priestly garment. They have trophim. They have the divination images. They have a pesa and a masecha. They have like, you know, they're, they're idols. Now, you know what to do. You know what to do. They turn aside there. So this has been some kind of complex there where the uh, idols of Micha, the shrine of Micha, exists. And there's a house there for Micha and his family, there's a house there for the lady. And they stop by and say, how are you doing? They all know this now, our lady. We spoke about this. The 600 men, right, minus five, <coughs> are at the gate. Now, the way that Dat Mikra explains the scenario is that those five men distract the Levi. We don't know where Mifa is right now, but the Levi is on the spot. Hi, how are you doing? They bring him out to show him their pals, the armed done people at the gate. And they're standing and schmoozing. Meantime, the five guys who know where the shrine is, they go in, right? They take the pesel, the ifo, the trapib, the masecha, and the Kohen is standing at the entrance of the gate with the 600 guys who are all ready for battle. Now he keeps getting called Levi, he keeps getting called a Kohen. We were very confused with this guy. But all of a sudden, you know, he's schmoozing. All of a sudden he sees that they're taking all the stuff. What are you doing? What are you doing? Right? He's afraid he's going to be out of a job. It's a job to him. It's, it's a way of making a living. Shut up. <laughs> Put your hand on your mouth. Okay, this is not a nice way to talk to people. Okay, and I think it's important to understand that we are getting clues from the way they talk that these are kind of what we would call today lowlifes. Like, you don't say to the people, put your hand on your mouth, shut your mouth. And then, and then, this is like the most bizarre part of it. come with us. You could be our father. You could be our Kohen. 
You know, you, we can give you a promotion. You could do better. Instead of just being Micha's little lady, you could be a lady, a Kohen for the whole tribe of Don. How do you like that? A promotion. And the Kohen says, yeah, okay. Sounds like a plan. That's his little, his uh, priestly garment. He takes the apo, the trough of the pestle, he goes with them. Now, what happened? At first, he's alarmed. What are you doing? Because he thinks he's out of a job. And now he says, oh, I'm getting a better job. Okay, who's the one who's getting shafted here? Micha. How much loyalty has our little lady Cohen got? Zero. Zero. Okay. This sounds like a great deal. I'm going to be a big fish now. I'm not just going to be Micha's little Heisbacher. Now, it's very interesting because <coughs> the contrast between the way they talk to him and the position they offer him is telling us something very significant. They say, why don't you shut up? But you know what? You could be our spiritual father. And it's to me a symbol of the kind of congregation which to our sorrow exists in all different places where the people who call the shots are not the spiritual leaders. The people who call the shots are the strong ones, the rich ones, the powerful ones. They tell the rabbis what they're supposed to do. And this is such an inversion of any kind of spiritual leadership. You're supposed to come to the spiritual leader for guidance. You're not supposed to tell the spiritual leader to shut up when you want him to shut up and to you know, give, give spiritual guidance when you want him to give spiritual guidance. This is like a, a life lesson for us, how not to run your shul, okay? Something to think about. And it gets worse. They're going on their way. And they put all of the children, Tafish children, the Mikne, the flocks, and the Kabuda. Now, anyone who travels in, in Israel knows that Kabuda is luggage, right? Because it's for the word Kaved. And they, they seem to have come already to move to Laish. They didn't say, well, let's battle, and then we'll go back home and take our families. They're ready. They're so certain that they're going to overcome the people in Laish that they just bring along all their people with them. Fine. And now they're going to be leaving Micha's territory, and they are preparing themselves for opposition from Micha, which is likely to happen. So they put all the things that are more vulnerable in the front and the back of their you know <coughs> train is the um the soldiers the armed people of Don they are making some distance between themselves and the house of Micha and the people that are within the houses that are together with Micha, they become alarmed and they start chasing after them. Now, don't forget, this is their shtibel. This is their little shul. And they're taking it away. Everybody went there for divination. Now, 
uh, you know, and I know that anything that the lady told them was a bunch of punk. But still, this is their religious connection and you're stealing it. And they start running as the people have done. The people have done, right? Pasuk of Gimel. They call that, okay. And they turn their faces around. It doesn't sound like they even turn their bodies around. They turn around and they say, What's to you that you are so alarmed? They're saying, uh, what's your problem? You got a problem? It sounds to me like any mafia movie. Really sounds like a mafia. What's your problem? Of course you know what's his problem. You stole all his stuff. But they're pretending that it's no big deal. And Micha's statement here is quite, um, <laughs> what can I say? Listen to for yourselves. You stole my garment I made. You stole my kohen. And you went. What if I got left? How could you say to me, what's your problem? You know what my problem is. You stole the God I made. And of course, the reader, right? The listener knows the irony, the ridiculous nature of you stole my God. Because like, you can't steal a God. And certainly, I made the God. You stole the God I made is the most ridiculous statement that you could ever imagine. We are meant to be laughing at Micha here. As pathetic as the story is, saying, what's wrong with these idol worshipers? They are so backwards. They don't know what they're talking about. But he's so distraught. You took the God. I made this God. And you took the God. And the B'nai Dai, who know very well what they've done, we don't want to hear from you. Don't, don't let us hear your voice anymore. There's some bitter people here who might hurt you. They might hurt you. You might get killed. Your family might get killed. You don't want to mess with us. It's again, it's impossible not to think of the mafia. Like it's just, you guys, shut up because there are bad people here who might hurt you. And this is like, it's beyond, it's beyond chutzpah and straight to the level of Biryonim, they're just thugs. They're just lowlifes. What kind of a thing is that to say to someone? Like, we stole your stuff, you should be quiet because there's bad people here who might hurt you. And Micha has nothing to do, right? <laughs> <coughs> And Micha sees that they're stronger than him and he turns and goes home. And this is another one of the things that we're meant to see here. Power rules. Might makes right. One of the things that we don't want to do here. 
Now, if you understand the people of Don, they haven't done anything that Micha didn't do. Before you feel too sorry for Micha, Micha originally stole money. So now he's being robbed. Micha makes himself a god. He makes himself idolatry. And they steal his idolatry. They are basically, you know, doing to him exactly what he did, just on a larger scale. And the Levi is an interesting character in the mix. He's just like this complete opportunist, you know, whoever pays me the most, I'm yours. And so we have this very pathetic picture. And if you think about this, what's very, very sad about this story is, who's the enemy? There's no enemy. It's just Jews. It's just Jews and treating each other badly. Right? Who who is who is the uh, the ideal here? None. It's just like, you know, on all sides, it's just a pathetic situation. It's very, very sad. Okay, let's finish up. They took everything that Micha made, and the Kohen, They took everything from Micha, and they come to Laish, to a nation that was, was quiet and secure, not uh, in any way um, alert, and they struck it before, according to the sword, and they burned the city. Right. And the question is, why did they burn the city? There's a number of reasons for this. Very interesting, right? Um, Radak says they wanted to frighten them during the conquest. But the, the Chazal making the ironic comment that the city was full of idol worship and they wanted to destroy the idol worship, which is just, it's just like kind of a hard one to, to, to take that in. The Ralbag says it was a warning to other cities. And that makes the most sense to me because don't mess with us. They took over the city, there was no one to help Laish. They were very far from their natural allies of Tzido. They had no allies. This is that uh, map, right? They were in the valley of Beit Rechov. It's a quiet place and nobody, nobody to stop them, nobody to bother them. They just took over. They took, they called the city Dan in the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel, in other words, the son of Yaakov. But Laish was uh, this name of the city before. Now it's very interesting. Like, what did they mean, Dan? Dan, son of Yaakov. Didn't we know that Dan was son of Yaakov? It's a very odd kind of statement, right? Uh, this is um, Rav Kar Karas says that they, this is showing that it's really their territory because that, that was their Nahala. You notice that later on in the Tanakh, we have an expression for the entirety of the land of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from the northernmost point, northernmost point of Dan till Beersheba. And then we get to the kicker of this story, Pasuk Lamed, by Yakim Lahem Bnei Dan et HaPesel, and they, the Bnei Dan set up the Pesel, the idol, the Yehonatan ben Gershom ben Menashe, who v'nav hayu kohenim l'shevet adani ad yom galot ha'aretz. Yonatan, the same Yonatan, now, now, 
understand that I told you at the end of, of our discussion of chapter 17 that this is Moshe's grandson. But if I hadn't told you, this is where you would find out. And in our edition here, it's a little problematic. Um, I want you to see how it's supposed to look. Don't have a good one. Okay. I want you to understand that here. Here, here, here's a good one. Okay. The people of Don set up the Pesel. Can you see this, Menashe? In, in, a, in, a, in a scroll, in a correct edition, you will see that the Nun is not on the same level as the Mem Shin Hei. The Nun is hanging. So a lot of places, like the other edition that we were looking at, you'll see a regular Menashe. But the Chazal are saying, no, it's really Moshe. Now, what are our clues that it's Moshe's grandson? First of all, Moshe had a son named Gershom. We know that, right? And if we're talking about the beginning of Sefer Shoftim, if that's the chronology of the story, then that makes sense. Moshe's grandson. It, it, it's very logical to think that he is alive at this time. Uh, at the end of Sefer Shoftim, <coughs> he would have to be over 300 years old. Although... I'll show you in a second the uh, metrish about that. <clears throat> but you see, the why is that nun hanging? So number one, they say, the Chazal, that we don't want to embarrass Moshe by saying this is his grandson. Number two, he is acting like Menashe, the evil idol-worshipping king Menashe, not the um, son of Yosef. And when we see this, only at the very end of the story, we are supposed to like take a deep breath, it's a shock, and say, oh my gosh, this opportunistic lady was Moshe's grandson. And how, what are we supposed to do with that information? What are we supposed to do with the information? And I think it's really important to think about this, right? Why would Moshe's, uh, Moshe's grandson get into this line of work? So the mentor tells us, <coughs> okay, I have a lot of Midrashim, and I keep finding them. Uh, uh, uh. Okay. The Danites said to him, right, who brought the hello? What are you doing here? By these inquiries, the Danites meant, are you not a descendant of Moses? How could you react as a priest to an idol? And he replied, I have a tradition from my grandfather's house that a man should hire himself out to officiate idol worship rather than be dependent on fellow mortars. Now, this is very strange. I don't think we mentioned it last time, so I just want to spend a minute on it. He said, my grandfather taught me that a person should rather do avodah zara than be dependent on others for their livelihood. This is a little bit of a strange thing. And the Medrash is explaining that really we're not expecting him to uh, do Avodah Zarah. There's a misunderstanding. What Moshe meant was Avodah Zarah Lecha, work that's strange to you. In other words, the, the, the Chazal say in the Gemara, right, better to uh, flay a carcass in the shuk, you know, to be a tanner, 
you're leading, dealing with dead animals, lots of blood and gore and icky and smelly. Better to do some nasty work than to come on to other people and ask them for help. But Yonatan interpreted it as better to actually work in Avodazara, which is idol worship, as to Avodazara idol uh, works, um, work that's strange to you. Avodazara Alcha. Now, one second. My Yasim Lahemet Pesav Micha Pasuk Lamed Aleph Asher Asal Kol Yimeheyot Beit Elokim Shilo, and they put for them the Pesav Micha, the idol of Micha that they that he made all the days that the house of God was in Shiloh. Um, so we have two expressions here that require some understanding. This Pesel Micha stood there for a very long time. Now, if we take a look at the Pasuk Lamed, it says until the day of the exile of the land. But Pasuk Lamed Elf says all the days of the house of God was in Shiloh. So there's a number of Mepharshim that say till the Golas, till Sancheirev, till the Ruchanetzer, but the Pashat Pshat would seem that if we're connecting these two events, that we're talking about Shiloh. And it's hard to understand, and we ask this question also, how could it be that it could be longer than Shiloh? In other words, to me, uh, in my humble opinion, we're saying that the house of God was in Shiloh, right? It was 369 years in Shiloh. And all that time, not far away, was the shrine of Micha. And it's sad to say that probably there were many, many other areas of idol worship. And, you know, you have to have your local shibble, but this has like gone a little too far. And a number, th a number of things that we should learn from here. Number one, number one, it's a lot about environment. We mentioned it last time. We came to a land that was pagan, corrupt, depraved, all sorts of it, 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 immoral and degenerate rites, child sacrifice, and all sorts of uh, terrible things went on in the pagan worship. And unfortunately, because we were among them, we learned from that. And this is true today also. If we are amongst a difficult uh, environment, if we get bad influences, it's hard to resist that. We have to be very careful. That's one thing we learned. Also, <coughs> we see an example of people who are trying to manipulate their Kedusha, people who think that they are calling the spiritual shots. I'm going to make the God the way I want it, and I'm going to have the God say what I want, and I'm going to take the God what I want, and I'll take your God. And all this stuff is just you know, antithetical to Judaism, where we say that Akash Baruch Hu is the one who calls the shots. But what are we going to do with this son, grandson of Rosh Rabbeinu? So a number of lessons we can draw from that. And one is, um, we, we do see many times great people whose children or grandchildren are not, uh, I mean, you don't have to go further than Yishmael, Esau, people who, you know, the, the sons of Eli, the sons of Shmuel, this real grandson of Moshe, we see that there is no guarantees. There's no guarantees, right? And people should not be quick to judge, right? This is a, a very, very difficult Parsha and a very sad thing. And unfortunately, it's everywhere. And don't be, don't be quick to judge because people are creatures of choice. And sometimes it's more important to them to make a buck than to 
be um, true to their God. I want to show you, for those of you who like happy endings, a very interesting medrash that I found here. Okay. Um, here. <coughs> In later years, when David perceived that Moshe's grandson had exceptional appreciation for money, he appointed him over the treasuries. Now, this is a very fascinating measure because it's, it's, it's putting um, Yonatan, this grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu, way another hundred years in the future to David. So we're talking about someone who's living for hundreds of years. <coughs> but we do find in Divrei Yamim a reference to Shavuel ben Gershom ben Moshe. Who is Shavuel? Wasn't his name Yonatan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moshe? And they say, Rabbi Yochanan explained, the name Shavuel means he returned to God, Shablakeel with all his heart. Very, very fascinating medrash. What is it saying? It's saying that David HaMelech took the good parts of this lady slash Cohen and said, you know what? He's a person who really likes money. I bet he would be a fantastic treasury secretary. And he gave him that job. And because he had a job that satisfied him and he's quite not, not a young man anymore, right? So he does tshuva with all his heart and he comes back to God. Very interesting to find that in Devarayamim, Shavuel, the son of Gershon, the son of Moshe. So there is hope for everyone, which I think is a, a nice thought. Although in general, the story is meant to tell us that there are when there's no leader in Israel, things go downhill and they go downhill pretty quickly. Okay, I'm gonna stop the share and take questions. Okay, anybody have questions? <coughs> you could unmute yourselves. Um, I have a comment. Okay. Uh, just the last thing you said about um, Shvuel, I'm just like, it seems a little weird that he would get credit to um, to worship Hashem when it's convenient for him. Oh, now he has money, so okay, he's good now, so he can do it. Well, the other midrashim do say that he didn't really believe in what he was doing. In other words, that he he did have a redeeming quality at that point, also. In other words. When people were coming to worship the idol, he said, don't you realize this idol can't do anything for you? So it really was, it seems to, uh, to say that he really was just doing it, you know, uh, without, any, without any conviction. It was, just, it was just a way to make a living. And you have to remember that the Levium had a tough time. They don't have a way to make their own living. They're supposed to be going around being teachers and kind of, yeah, some of them had a hard time. But also, he must have been ancient. <laughs> the Midrashim are very, very bizarre. There's other Midrashim that we didn't get to, that Micha was one of the bricks, the bricks that the Jewish people were forced to, to either use their babies as bricks. And Moshe Rabbeinu was horrified. And he said, God, how could you do this to Jewish people? And God said, well, no, those babies are really not, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be sinful. And if you want to check, you could take one out. And that baby was Micha. And oh, then wow. there's another medrash which says that um, when Moshe wanted to marry Tzipora, <coughs> Yisra, speaks Parsha Yisra, 
Israel made a deal with him. He said, you can marry Tzipora if you give your first son to idol worship. Very strange medrash. And why would Moshe agree to that? And, you know, because he was living with Yisrael for a while. And I guess he got influenced by Yisrael. Or maybe he had Ruach HaKodesh knowing that Yisrael will do tshuva, so he won't end up doing it anyway. But you see, what you're doing when you put, you say, you know, there's a lot of discussions of that particular medrash. I didn't want to bring it up because it takes too much time. But now, like, we're kind of over time. Basically, according to the medrash, according to the way people interpret the medrash, that Yisrael was a, a, a truth seeker. And he was saying, I want the son, your, your first son, to be able to choose his own path. And so what he's basically saying is, you know, send him to a liberal arts college and let him, you know, study all kinds of, uh, you know, different religions, let him take a course in Buddhism and whatever else, and then see what he likes best. So that might be, you know, an interesting way to go, but, you know, it's definitely not without its dangers. And the question is, why would Moshe go along with it? It's a very strange measure. Some of the Midrashim are just very strange. Why would Moshe go along with that? Tonight, Ruth. So like, uh, what do we do with these Midrashim? The bottom line here is that we're being shown alam hafuch. We're being shown an upside down world where thieves make themselves into, you know, uh, rabbis of shuls, where a whole tribe uh, becomes a bunch of barbarians, yeah. talking like, you know, some kind of mafia bosses, stealing a whole, you know. They just, but they all sound like a bunch of stupid thugs, which clearly they couldn't have been, but that's what they sound like. So you, the, the, the Nabi is telling us something. The Nabi is saying, when you are going off and you're allowing yourself to be influenced by the forces around you, you can go downhill very quickly to a place and you don't even realize it. Micha thinks he's a tzaddik. Now God will be good for me because I have a lady for a kohen. Micha thinks he's a tzaddik. He stole money from his mother. How low can you go? On the other hand, he's a machas archim because he's a nice Jew. What are we supposed to make of these contradictory people? It's weird because like he says, how, how do you take the God that I made? So clearly he knows he made this God. So can't be that great of a God. Oh, okay, you're going to fight me? Never mind, I'm going home. Take care. What? This is such a weird story. It's a very weird story. And the only, the really um, interesting thing about Pesalicha is that we are meant to be mocking them. They're 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 being portrayed in a way that makes us say, well, that's ridiculous. We're supposed yeah. to be saying, Micha, you're crazy. Yonatan, you're 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 so selfish. How could you turn on Micha like that and just walk off? Like it's you're just supposed to make fun of them. You're not supposed to, there's no heroes here. There's no heroes. On the other hand, there's no enemies, except for the story of Laish, which is very peripheral, that whole battle. It's just Jews. It's all about Jews. And the same thing is true of the next story, the Pilagish Begiva. There's, there's no, we don't have to push them in there. We don't have to, it's just Jews misbehaving. It's very sad. We know we, we're our own worst enemies, we seem to be saying. We're our own worst enemies. We can just get our acts together, right? 
But Ein Melech Yisrael, we, we need our Melech. We need a Kodesh Baruch and we need some good leadership because otherwise we don't know what we're doing. And that seems to be the bottom line. So...